This morning we're in Isaiah 58. Go ahead and turn your Bibles there. How many of you have seen Frozen? The movie Frozen? Disney movie classic? How many fans do we have in the room for Prince Hans? Yes? Not so much. Come on. We were all fans of Prince Hans within the first, like, 30 minutes of that movie. Rachel wasn't fooled. Rachel wasn't fooled. That's what she's giving me right now. He fits all the stereotypes of the prototypical Disney prince. He's handsome. He's charming. He has a hilarious introduction. He uh, dances a waltz with the princess. He even sings a fantastic duet with Anna. Love is an open door, yes, come on. Who, has anyone wanted to lip sync that with their spouse in the car? Anybody? No? <laughs> it's clearly like a millennial thing, a little bit younger. Um, loved Prince Hans, kind of checked all the boxes. I was excited about him. I even felt a little bit emotionally conflicted whenever Kristoff came into the story. And if you guys haven't seen Frozen, this is all just a complete waste of your time. But I'm going to tell you something right now. This is a, a little bit of a plot twist if you haven't seen Frozen. And if you haven't by now, you never will. So that's okay. But Hans turns out to be a bad guy. A little bit of a plot twist there. Big upset. Super upset. I remember thinking, man, they really threw me off. Like, Hans is not. He wasn't good. Super surprised. A similar thing is happening here in Isaiah 58. Whenever we start off this passage. Where we pick up in 58. Go ahead and just have the Bibles open today because we're gonna I'm gonna kinda stay tethered to the to the passage going back and forth really really often. I'm not actually gonna read the whole thing at once. We're just gonna start and kind of move back and forth. So have the Bible out, have the app out, get ready for that. We see God's people in Isaiah 58. We see Israel. And they're speaking to God, they're fasting they're praying, they're asking God to judge justly. Everything looks good on the outside. I mean, right? They're, they're fasting, they're praying, they're, they're doing all these things. They're asking for righteous judgments. That's, that's the equivalent of singing the love song duet with the princess. Like, you've got to be a good guy, right? But God sees right through the Israelites' show. And here's what he says through Isaiah the prophet. This is what he tells Isaiah to do here in verses verse one cry aloud do not hold back lift up your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgression to the house of jacob their sins verse one cry aloud don't hold anything back this in the hebrew literally means to stretch your voice to the max as loud as you can possibly say it say this and what does god tell isaiah to say to his people he wants Isaiah to tell them that they're in sin. He wants to tell the people of Israel of their transgression. This is how the passage begins, as loudly and as forcefully as possible. Hey! That's what Isaiah is doing. Waking up the people of God because the people of God here, the house of Jacob, is asleep in their sin. They need a wake-up call. So here's what we're going to see in Isaiah 58, God's wake-up call, God's reveille this morning. One, God isn't fooled by our hypocrisy. That's going to be our first point. God isn't fooled by our hypocrisy. Two, God is merciful and he delights to bless the repentant. Two, God is merciful and he delights to bless 
the repentant. And three, God does what we could not do in Jesus. God does what we could not do in Jesus. Before we uh, dive in, let's pray, and then we'll begin. Father, open up our, our eyes to see and our ears to hear. Illumine our hearts and our minds as we approach your word this morning. Where it is needed, wake us up, make us uncomfortable. Let us see where we are failing to live a life worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And then remind us that you are merciful and you delight uh, to bless the repentant heart. And Father, remind us that our righteousness is found in the person and work of Jesus. We love you. We praise you. Amen. So the first point, God isn't fooled by our hypocrisy, even while we've fooled ourselves sometimes. Let's jump in here. Verse 1. This is God speaking to Isaiah. He says, go crazy. Do whatever it takes to get their attention. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Don't pull any punches, Isaiah. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. I think I've seen at least half a dozen uh, you know, summer camp movies where all the kids are asleep in their bunk beds. And we're, That's what I thought of when I saw lift up your voice like a trumpet. And the kids are you know, waking up out of a dead sleep in their bunk beds. That's the picture that we've got here. Israel symbolically asleep in their bunk beds. The counselor waking them up. But what's the picture? They're not asleep like a... You know, like these middle schoolers sweetly sleeping. No, the picture here is that we have Israel asleep in their sin, which is not as pretty of a picture. God is saying that emphatically in verse 1. They're in sin. Look here in verse 2, though, and we kind of see some of this hypocrisy and some of the reason why they need waking up in the first place. Verse 2, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. Does that not sound like a good thing? Israel on the outside appears to be seeking God. They look the part. They're talking the part. They're talking as if you know, they want to be a godly nation. They are saying that they're delighting in his ways. But the catch here is in the second half of verse 2. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. As if they were a nation that did righteousness. And did not forsake the judgment of their God. As if. So what is God saying? That while the nation talks like they see me, while they might appear on the outside, they might look the part. This is a nation that has forsaken God's judgment. This is a nation that has abandoned righteousness. No longer does what is right. And God sees it. He just sees right through it. His eyes are not like our eyes. We love to be flattered. We love to hear what we want to hear. We see what we want to see, but not so with God. He looks right through it. He sees to the heart of the matter. He sees to the heart of man here. Last part of verse 2. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. There's a passage in, in Amos, the prophet Amos, where he says, Woe to those who long for the day of the Lord to come. Woe to those who long for the day of the Lord to come. And you read that and you're thinking, man, there's some irony there. These are God's people who are asking for righteous judgment. 
delighting to draw near to God, longing for the day of the Lord to come. These are not positive things. But the irony here is that those who are longing for the day of the Lord to come, they don't realize that with the day of the Lord comes judgment. And they themselves are going to be judged for their hypocrisy. We see that irony here in Isaiah. God saying, hey, they're asking for righteous judgment. It's coming. They, they delight to draw near to me. I'm coming near. And it's not a good thing. Verse 3. We see where the hypocrisy really kind of, the, the, the veil kind of starts coming back here. We can really kind of see the, the heart of the issue here. This is Israel talking. They say, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? This is Israel talking. They're saying, hey, we've been fasting. Have you not noticed? We've totally humbled ourselves and I don't feel like you're giving us credit for it. You know, does that sound super humble? This, is, uh, this makes me think of um, a child, not to be mentioned, um, you know, when they do things where they, you know, hey, mom, dad, look, I did this or I did that. And we're like, whoa, way to go. Good job. Good job, bud. Now can we go get ice cream? Oh, okay. There it is. Got it. Got it. Now I see what you really did. This is Israel here saying, hey, God, we've cleaned our room. Where's our ice cream? This is not true humility. This is not true fasting in order to draw near to God. This is investing this is, hey, we put money down, so we expect to return God. God, you're our, portf- our, our investment portfolio. You're that mutual fund. You've got that 7% return. We expect it back. I know there might be ups and downs in the market, but we put our money in. We want it back. That's Israel here. And we kind of scoff at that a little bit, but do we not do this? Do we not do this with our God? Keep reading in verse 3. Behold, this is God talking now again. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. God's just calling it as it is. This fasting, it's really just for you. It's for show. It's a down payment so that you can get your ice cream, so that you can get your retirement fund. You can retire in comfort. That's what it's really going on. It's all about you. He continues in verse 4. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. That first line, behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight. This is God basically saying, listen, you're just fasting so that you can just carry on. You're checking off this box so that you can just keep on doing what you're doing and continue with your evil ways. You're fighting your strife. This makes me think of the end of the Godfather. um, The first one, the best one. Where uh, Don Corleone, he's sitting in, um, at the very end of the movie, he's, he's sitting in uh, Catholic Mass. And uh, it's towards the very end of the, of the movie. He's there in church watching the christening of his son, I believe. Um, he's about to observe the sacraments. He's taking the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine. He's going through all the motions. Meanwhile, simultaneously, there's this montage of all of his real plans are coming together and all of his enemies are being simultaneously murdered. So the producers are drawing this, this great juxtaposition of this man who's cleaned up holy in the, in the church pew, watching as, as, you know, a child being christened. Meanwhile, outside the church doors, his true nature is being revealed by his action. God declares plainly, this type of fasting, 
this type of offering, this hollowed out, empty lip service, this robotic, rote memorization stuff, this is not what I desire. This does not please me. Verse 5, he goes on to say, Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? So God's just saying, do you think this is what I want, more of this show? You know, this, this bow down your head like a reed, spreading out the sackcloth to ashes, you know, putting on the show. Do you think that's what I want? More of that. You think this is acceptable? Verses 6 and 7, this is where God starts kind of turning here and we see what God is actually looking for. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? We see that right here in, in verses 6 through 7. We see what God actually wants his people to be doing. And here is the indictment on Israel. In verses 6 and 7, do you see anything about purity of heart mentioned? It doesn't even address the heart here. He's saying, I can see by your lack of actions. I can see by the things that you are not doing where your heart really is. Anyways, everything looked right initially with Israel. Everything at first glance. We've got a prince. He's charming. He's funny. He danced a, a, a dance and he sang a duet. But something's not right. Israel is fasting. Israel is seeking God. Religion is booming. But their spiritual poverty is revealed in the way that they were treating the poor. And the marginalized, the defenseless, the outcasts, the hungry, the oppressed. See, God loves the brokenhearted. We see it in all the prophets. Really, we see that in, in, throughout all the prophets. It's one of the, the major themes is social justice in the prophets. And really in the, in the Old Testament as well. Not just in Isaiah. God loves the outcasts. We saw it this morning in Ruth. Unmerited grace shown to this foreigner. We saw it in Ruth's grandma-in-law, mother-in-law, Rahab. The poor and the marginalized. These are the ones that God loves. So by extension, God's people will show love to them. And Israel's neglect and their oppression and their disdain for those who are considered lesser, that revealed their heart. And it isn't God's heart. So God saw right through their hypocrisy. He wasn't fooled. He, he wasn't fooled. Israel had fooled themselves. They thought that they had done everything that they needed to do to get their investment back, to get their ice cream. But God wasn't. He wasn't fooled by it at all. So that's our first point. God isn't fooled by our hypocrisy, even though sometimes we fooled ourselves. But here's some good news in our second point. God is merciful, and he delights to bless the repentant heart. Here's verses 8. Then, if you do these things that are in verses 6 through 7, verses 8, then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. God is saying, when you look like this, when you look like verses 6 and 7, the things that he's outlined there, 
what the people of God are to look and act like, your blessing is going to be like the light of the first dawn, breaking through the darkness of night. When you truly reflect my heart, then all will be well. Righteousness will go before you. In Hebrew, this phrase, righteousness, will go before you. It's like saying that righteousness will be the herald of, that tells of all your goodness. See, in, in ancient times, great men, powerful men, they would have heralds who would go before them telling of their greatness. This man did this or that. This man conquered this. This man restored this area to, you know, to plenty or whatever. And this happened in the, you know, in ancient times, we'd have these heralds that would proclaim all the greatness of a particular person or whatnot. And we have these now, too. We have heralds. They're called marketing teams, and they're called uh, commercials. I know that Kawhi Leonard is incredible because ESPN keeps telling me that he's incredible. ESPN is like the herald that is always in my living room. God is saying, when you look and act like me, when you take up the true fast that I desire, righteousness is going to go before you. It will lead the way. It will be your herald. It will be your ESPN commercials. And the glory of God will come up as your rear guard. We talked about this in, in our Sunday school. This phrase, so interesting. I've not seen this before. The, the glory of the Lord acting as your rear guard, protecting and enclosing you. The rear guard is the backside of this army formation. So basically, you know, the only function of the rear guard in a military formation is just make sure the enemy doesn't come up behind you and surprise you. Take you from behind. God is saying right here, I myself, I will ensure that the enemy never sneaks up behind you. I will ensure that this does not happen to you. Read verse 9 with me. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. You see God's heart here. You see his merciful heart and how he delights to give it. See, even after all this, all the hypocrisy, the craziness and the abuse and the wickedness, all of that is that when you turn to the Lord and call to him, he's going to answer you. That's in his character. He's always going to answer. And you know, as we read this passage, we shouldn't be surprised as we're, as we're looking at Isaiah 58. We shouldn't be surprised when we see God irate over injustice and over oppression. That shouldn't surprise us because he's this holy and just God. And his anger gets kindled whenever he sees this type of oppression. But just in the same way that we shouldn't be surprised when we see that, we shouldn't be surprised whenever we see him extend mercy and forgiveness. We shouldn't be surprised when we see him offer hope in a way to be redeemed. Because God is a loving, merciful, and gracious God. Continue reading here in verses 9. It says, If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry, and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. If you get this stuff, if you get it, Taking care of it. if you do this, if you look and act like me, if you reflect my heart and my true character. Then, verse 11, and the Lord will, con will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. He says in verse 11, I'm going to satisfy you. You will lack for nothing. He says here in scorched places. We don't see famine often. We don't see drought often. 
But the audience of Isaiah, they would be familiar with this. They know how serious that is. We read this morning, why did Elimelech's family even move south? Because there's a famine. This is life or death. This is a serious situation. They would have in their mind's eye an idea of what famine looks like. Months and months of um, harsh sunlight, no rain. They know what that looks like, what that does to a, to a society, to a culture. We don't have to worry about that as much. So instead, I turn on Netflix and I watch You Versus Wild. And me and Benjamin and Judah, we watch Bear Grylls out in a salt flat trying to survive. If anyone doesn't know who Bear Grylls is, he's the coolest guy in the world. Benjamin is affirming right now. Bear Grylls, he's a former British special ops guy. He goes out to these beautiful, incredibly beautiful, but horrifically dangerous places where it's just the wild. It's untamed wild, and it just shows you how to survive. And I remember watching this, this episode of him in a salt flat in the sun. I mean, you, it, the, the camera can't capture it, but you just like feel oppressed by the heat and the dryness of this area. And he's, he's walking out there. And as he's walking over the ground, it's literally cracking beneath him. He picks up like a plate of the ground and he shatters it. And it shatters like glass all over the place. It is a scorched place. That's what I have in my mind when I read this. And God is saying that when we adopt his heart and he is guiding us, though we might be in a salt flat with bare grills, we will be like a watered garden in that place. He provides for us a never-ending Stream, a never-ending spring of life, giving refreshing water. All we need will be provided for. That is God's promise to those who turn to Him and to those who call out for Him. Verse 9 shows His mercy. You shall cry out, or you will cry out, and He will say, Here I am. It's God's mercy that He even responds to us. Verse 11, we see His grace. Mercy that He even responds, that He even offers hope for redemption. But verse 11, we see His grace. Not only does He respond in mercy by hearing us, but He graciously provides for us more than we ever need. We don't just need water in the salt flat. God says, I'm going to make you like a watered garden. I'm going to give you a spring of never-ending, life-giving, refreshing water. That is grace. Read verse 12. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Verse 12 tells us the extent to which God will continue to bless. How far he can go to save. Ancient ruins. Ancient ruins are not a place of promise. Called ancient ruins for, for a reason. They tell us something that was. Something long, long ago, lost forever. A city, a culture, beauty, and life. Everything now buried in dirt and rubble. And God says, no, I can resurrect that. I can rebuild that. What do you mean no hope? I am hope. What do you mean lost forever? In me, all things are found. Things forgotten and given up. Foundations in disrespair. And disrepair. God breathes new life into that and can make it beautiful again. Verses 13 and 14. He says, If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, 
Then you, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That opening line, he says, if you turn back your foot, basically means don't walk on the Sabbath. And this is figurative, obviously. He doesn't mean that you actually have to crawl around or anything on, on the Sabbath. You have to sit still. But walking is regularly referred to in, in Scripture as kind of like a way of life. That is like doing life. So he says, if you make the Sabbath not about that anymore, not about like whatever's going on here, the day-to-day, the normal. If you make it about me, then you're gonna, you're gonna, at that point, you will, del- you will learn to delight in me. When you turn off the rest of the stuff, when you stop focusing on all the other, then you will delight for me, or you will delight in me, and then I will provide for you lavishly. We see God is merciful and he loves to bless the repentant. Let's review those points. One, God is not fooled by our hypocrisy. Two, God is merciful. And you can see in these verses that he delights to bless those who turn to him. He loves doing it. He loves giving blessing. He, he desires mercy, not sacrifice. And our final point in conclusion is this. God does what we could not do in Jesus. I hope by this point you've been a little bit convicted. And I hope you've been encouraged as well. And that God is merciful. But now it might kind of start creeping back into your head. I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> this is what's asked of me. Verses 67. Loose the bonds of wickedness. Free the oppressed. Break every yoke. Share my bread with the hungry. Bring the homeless poor into my house. When I see the impoverished, to share my very clothes with him. Do I pour myself out for others? Do I satisfy the desire of the afflicted? Do I delight in the Lord? In the, in the Lord? Israel never did this. Not fully. We never see them doing this. We, I mean, we're reading this passage this morning. This, Boaz is an exception. Israel as a people always flawed. Never accomplished this to the uttermost. Israel could not live up to it. We cannot live up to this. But there is one who did. Jesus did all of this to the uttermost. God in His mercy, seeing that we could not do this on our own, has sent His Son to do it for our, on our behalf. Every chain broken, every captive set free. For in Christ there is neither slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. All who are hungry and thirsty have now found life-giving bread and water in Him. All who are homeless can find shelter in His arms. All who are naked are clothed in His righteousness. The poor now share in His riches. The downcast, the downtrodden have now been raised up and glorified. We could not do this, but there is one who did, the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth, God's one and only Son, sent here to willingly die for our hypocrisy, for our foolishness, for our rebellion. And God the Father saw His act of faithfulness saw the Son's perfect life embodying all of this, and on the third day, His light broke forth like the first light of dawn, bringing the light of dawn with it. Righteousness went before Him, heralding His greatness. The glory of the Lord was His rear guard. He is the water garden, the spring of life whose waters will never fail. He is the ancient of days, the city that Satan 
tried to bring to ruin, tried to make a ruin out of them with his death on the cross. All hope was lost, buried in the dirt and thought lost forever, but God raised him up and Jesus is now our firm foundation. He is the repairer of the breach. The chasm that we could never bridge between us and God now spanned by his outstretched arms on the cross. He is the restorer of the streets, his very person, the way, the truth, and the life that we must travel to be with the Father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken, and he has spoken most clearly in the voice of his Son. Listen now, if you're sitting out there in brokenness, if you're sitting there in rebellion or in hypocrisy, cry out, the Lord our God will answer you. Delights to show you mercy. He delights to be gracious to you. So I ask you to come now as we respond and surrender everything at the feet of Jesus.